Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's talk about God's control of the weather. Uh, when it comes to the weather, we, we should never see the laws of nature uh, nature itself, the way nature works, weather and fronts and cold fronts and low pressure systems and all that stuff that we hear about um, from the meteorologists and the weather people. And we, ne- we should never see that as something that God has sort of wound up and just kind of let go. All right. That, that's um, the technical term is the, the, a deist view that there is a God, but he's not really all that concerned with us or our world, or our lives. There is a God who has created everything and kind of started everything, but he's pretty much hands-off. Yes, deism, or just kind of basic theism, um, the higher power thing of the Masons, that God has sort of designed all this and just kind of, you know, lets it go. That is not the God of the Bible. God is not designed or created and then walked away from the day-to-day events of his creation. He establishes the laws, the physical laws, the scientific laws that govern the universe, But when we think about it, those laws and that order that God has designed in the universe comes from who he is. Uh, There is logic because there is God. There are physical and natural laws because there is God. And without God holding all things together and in whom and from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, there would be no physical laws because there would be no creation. There'd be no universe. There'd be nothing. And so all of that flows from who he is. And this applies to all expressions of nature, what we would consider good and what we might consider bad. All of it flows from his sovereign purposes and command. That is to say that even the weather is no impersonal expression, as the author put it, of natural laws. There's nothing in the universe, even in the weather, that just happens apart from God's sovereign command and will. God did not create and then walk away. And even if we say, well, uh, he could step in, or he, he does step in from time to time, but he's not typically all that involved, that's still not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible has no concept of a God who created and wound it up and then stepped away and might step in from time to time to do something. Now, it, it pictures God, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, in empires and nations and kings and thoughts and actions and desires and wars and now weather and the universe. All of these things are under God's control, and he has never walked away from his sovereign command of all things. In fact, in the Bible, there are some 1,400 references to weather. Think about a lot in the Old Testament and droughts and famine and floods and things that God controls and commands and come at his will are, as, as we said, are withheld according to his will. All right, I'm not going to make you turn to some of these because you read them in your discussion questions, um, but from Job 
37, 3, 6, and then 10 through 13. Um, did, does anybody just still have that open from earlier, from your discussion time? Okay, I lied. We're going to turn there together. Uh, Job 37, back to where you were in your discussion time. Job 37. Can you read, um, start with 3, 6, yeah, it's, read all that for us. <laughs> That's a hard one. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. I love the nuances there in verse 13. Uh, as, as early as the book of Job is, and as primitive as we might think it should be, um, it's, it's interesting to see that God could send or withhold weather for correction, for the land, or for love. He causes it to happen in his judgment, his love, and his wisdom. All right, turn over to Psalm 147, verse 8. Psalm 147, verse 8. Could someone read that when you get there? Psalm 147, 8. Anybody? Jesse, you go. I'll come back. Okay, and, and, and notice the progression there from the heavens and the clouds to rain for the earth to the grass that grows on the earth. That all of it's kind of covered there in those three statements that God controls these things. He covers, he prepares, he makes. Or the rhetorical question there, who does, who does? And the answer, of course, being God. All right, Jesse, could you go down and read then verses 16 through 18? Okay, and covering all the elements there, God is in control, and it's from him as the source of all these things that they happen. All right, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10, verse 13. Matt, do you want to read that for us? Jeremiah 10, 13. Okay, uh, see God personally and actively involved in, in the weather. And, and this can get tricky because, you know, as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, I think it was Pat Robertson or someone talking about God sending Katrina to judge New Orleans. Uh, on one hand, he's not wrong in that God is the one who sent the hurricane. Uh, you can't get around that fact. On the other hand, we should not presume to speak for God's motives because uh, we're not prophets. I don't think Pat Robertson is a prophet, and I don't think I'm a prophet for us to be able to determine why God is doing such a thing and to be able to declare it boldly. Maybe we say, maybe God is doing this, but as Job said, maybe it's also this or maybe it's this. 
so we have to find the, the middle ground there. We say, yes, God is involved. Yes, God is doing it personally and actively and without also trying to attribute motives to what God is doing. All right, the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 4, verse 7. Can someone read that for us? Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so we see God's sovereignty there in sending and withholding. Sending rain, withholding rain, all according to his sovereign command and his sovereign purposes. So all weather, all weather, good and bad, is in God's hands. All weather, therefore, is an act of God. Using that language that we hear from the insurance companies, right? Things out of our control, an act of God. Uh, and that only applies in certain circumstances um, to, with insurance. <laughs> but according to the Bible, all weather is an act of God. Everything happens at his command and his control. So even in regards to something as simple, and maybe we don't think about it this way, as weather... There is no chance. There is no dumb luck. There is no fate that is not controlled and commanded by the sovereign God. So, since the weather is in God's hands, since the weather is in God's hands, complaining about the weather is complaining against God. Yeah, and that's something. Oh. Um, we've. <laughs> I grew up in North Carolina, moved to Tennessee for Bible college. We got married in Tennessee, then we moved to Kentucky together for seminary, and then first full time pastoral job was in Florida, Central Florida, and then recently our uh, my first senior pastor position was in. North Carolina, but towards the coast, down towards Myrtle Beach, but in North Carolina, right across the border. And then the panhandle of Texas. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny, though, everywhere we've been, uh, weather is, uh, this is going to sound like, yeah, you think, weather's different. Weather's different everywhere we've been. And th there's seasons, and the seasons are shorter, the seasons are longer. And, you know, in Florida, you have like maybe a week or two of some cold weather, but then, you know, it's like springtime through the wintertime, and then it's humid. It was more humid in North Carolina, where we lived um, recently, than it was in Tabor City. Like, the, the, the humidity index was often higher there than it was even in central Florida. And then here, there's, you know, no humidity, and whereas we were putting these little damp red pouches in our closets in other states, we come here, and we have to put a humidifier in the middle of the house, uh, and so it's different, and, and, and God has created the world in such a way where it is different, and there, there are natural laws, and there are things that operate, but they don't operate outside of his command and his sovereign will. And so for us to complain or to grumble about the weather or about a storm or about rain or whatever it is, is to grumble against God. Now, here, I think more than anywhere else, because it's such an agriculturally heavy place, and there is not a lot of rain. There's a lot of complaining and, and, and grumbling, I think, about rain. Rightfully so. But maybe we should shift 
in our thinking, rather from grumbling and complaining, to praying and seeking God, uh, since he has control over it, uh, to send the rain, to send the moisture. And we pray for that. I'm not saying we don't. We do. And maybe just recalibrate our thinking a little bit, because when we complain, I misspelled the word on there, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, we complain against the weather. We're complaining against an act of God. We must learn to love God's sovereign hand. Whether it's the hand that gives or the hand that takes away. Job, remember, uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think as, as insignificant as it might seem to us to think of weather in that way, it, it might help us think about God's sovereignty more if we thought of the weather in that way. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, if we don't have to be cows or something, right? Cows, farts, or whatever it is. Burning the ozone out. I don't know about any of that. We'll have to ask AOC. Uh, (laughs) God can use the weather to judge. Okay? There's no doubt, if you read the Bible, (laughs) that God uses weather to judge. Whether it's a flood or whether it's a drought that causes a famine, kills the livestock, and then therefore kills people, Um, whether it's hail or tornadoes or hurricanes or uh, fires or whatever natural disasters we might think of, uh, God can certainly use the weather to judge. But as he says there in Job 37, he can also use the weather as his gracious provision, that even the rain, even a storm, even in many cases, wildfires in dense forests um, help the ecological system that's there. And we think of it as merely destructive, or a storm is merely, merely destructive, or a hurricane or a tornado is merely destructive without thinking of the benefits that are also uh, in there. As hard as it is for us to think that way when they hit towns and things, um, God is at work in weather, either accomplishing judgment accomplishing his gracious provision of giving food to us and caring for the land, or in his love, uh, just simply causing the sun to shine and giving us a pretty day like he did today. All of that is from God and from his sovereignty. So, stop complaining and give thanks. Stop complaining and give thanks. Thank you for the constant 35-mile-per-hour wind here in the panhandle, God. We thank you for that. What do you say, Brent? (laughs) so yeah so don't listen to me it's okay it's all right give thanks for the wind all right so let's talk about natural disasters then um it's sort of a why am i not spelling right here that's gonna bother me natural distasters (laughs) whatever that is yeah they're distasteful yeah there we go we fixed it uh, natural disasters. So the question comes up as sort of a byproduct of weather, natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, uh, all those things we see and, and capture our attention on the news. And the question has to inevitably, inevitably be from people, why does God allow this? And, you know, sometimes I like to, given the moment, okay, I'm not going to do this if someone's just lost you know, everything in like a tornado. But if someone asks, well, why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? We have to actually press it a little further, don't we? Because God doesn't just merely allow it, but God has commanded it. 
Uh, I think sometimes we use the allow thing as sort of a cop-out to not have to answer the question. Well, God isn't in, you know, God's in control, but something he just allows and permits. No, God commands and controls these things. So why did he do that? If it's not just why did God allow it, why did God do it? It's an understandable and appropriate question to ask. And, and from our vantage point, oftentimes it comes from a place of compassion and love and pity, concern for other people, um, and it causes us to pray for them. But we should also be careful in pressing that question too hard because, number one, we do not sit in judgment over God. We like to think we do sometimes, and we try to at times, but we don't. We do not sit in charge and judgment over him. We also can't remove God from the equation. And again, I think sometimes uh, Christians in, in good intended efforts to try to explain something to someone who's hurting or someone who's suffering or, or to explain a natural disaster, sometimes we try to sort of make an excuse for God. And so we use the, uh, the merely allow language or, or maybe even we go to the deist language. Well, you know, God is in control and God made everything, but he doesn't like cause everything. He's not really in control of that. Uh, as Rabbi Kushner, remember in the first chapter, uh, told us some things are just even out of God's control. We don't have that option if we're going to be biblical. We can't just remove God from the equation. God himself accepts responsibility. You don't have to turn to Isaiah 45, 7. You read it earlier. I'm the Lord. I, I bring prosperity and I cause calamity. I bring goodness. I bring disaster. God, it takes responsibility for both. Um, if he didn't, there, there might be an argument from silence in Scripture that we could say otherwise, but God does. Um, there, we'll, we'll get to this later, but even with, with Moses at the burning bush, God takes responsibility for these things. Um, in your book, page 92, at the top I have a quote. God's sovereignty over nature does not mean that whatever we experience at the hand of the weather or other forces of nature, such as plant diseases or insect infestation or our, our crops, all circumstances are under the watchful eye and sovereign control of our God. Oh, it does mean that. Sorry, God's sovereignty over nature does mean that. <laughs> Whatever we experience, uh, all circumstances are under the sovereign, watchful control and sovereign control of our God. So that brings us to this question of suffering. Uh, we talked about weather, you know, out there, and then also we talked about weather and its effects on people with natural disasters. And that brings us to that question of suffering. Why do bad things happen to people? Uh, why do bad things happen, as they say, to good people? You remember how we answered that one, right? What did God say to Moses? Exodus four eleven. Can someone just turn there and read that for us? You got it ready, Maddie? Read it for us. Yeah, and this was Moses arguing with God about um, going to Egypt and being his spokesperson, and Moses is trying to get out of it by saying, I don't speak well, you don't want to send me, I'm not good at that. And God interrupts him almost mid-sentence. Who made your mouth? Or any man's mouth for that matter. And, you know, let alone your speech impediment, Moses, whatever it was or whether he was lying. God says, I make man to speak. I make man mute. I make man to see. I make man blind. Uh, and, and everything else. God is the one who takes responsibility for that. So no afflictions, no afflictions, whatever they are, quote, 
just happen. Nothing just happens. But they are within the sovereign will of God. Um, one of the times Jehovah's Witnesses came to our house in Florida, I think it was the time I thought that someone was dropping off a pie, and I heard the door knock, and I made Jessica go answer the door because I thought it was Miss Beth with a pie for us, but it was Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> and uh, they, <laughs> they didn't have a pie, they had heresy, and so yeah. Uh, I, so I began listening. I think it was early on a Saturday morning. We were laying in bed back when we could do that, you know, just lay in bed all day. And we were listening, and I was listening to her talk. And the thing they were going after was, was this. And the question they, they kind of asked her to start with, well, does God cause suffering? Is it God that causes suffering? And, and one of their big things is no. That is all Satan, all the time. God doesn't bring suffering. God doesn't cause suffering. That is all Satan. Now, it's interesting to think that's what Jehovah's Witnesses say in, in their false theology when there's a lot of Christians who would say the same thing. And, and we don't have to look too far in Dumas to hear people saying these kinds of things, that, that God doesn't bring suffering into your life. That's not God's will for you to be sick or for you to be disabled or for people to die. And they say this, and this is just the Prosperity Gospel 101. That's not God's will. It's not God's desire. However, when we look at Scripture, we see a completely different story. And again, we might not have all the answers laid out for us. The biblical authors don't take time to do that all the time, and certainly not there in Exodus chapter 4. But God clearly says, listen, I'm the one who makes people blind. I'm the one who makes people mute or deaf and every other affliction we could think of. And Moses, maybe like some of us, would be, would, are dumbfounded and God taking responsibility for that. But we don't have the out to say that God is just not involved. And we certainly don't have an excuse to say, well, that's all Satan and it's not God. I mean, what kind of system is that where, where Satan can just do what he wants and, and God just has to let him? Or God could step in but doesn't? I mean, I think that brings up bigger problems, uh, that God could do all these things, um, but he just simply doesn't because he just kind of lets Satan do what he wants. Let's look at some scriptures here. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. And someone read that verse for us. Romans 8, 20. All right. Creation was subjected to futility. That is a, sort of an emptiness, vanity. <coughs> Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And there's two ways you can look at that. Either Creation was subjected to the fall because of man's rebellion against God in, in the fall, Adam and Eve. Or creation was subjected to that by God in the curse of the fall. I think either way it's a correct answer. Uh, we see how God created the world good with no suffering and none of these things. And then we see the entrance of sin and the entrance of the fall. And we say... Um, that creation itself, not just our hearts, but all creation, weather, nature, everything has been affected and tainted by the effects of sin and the effects of the fall. And Paul says as much here. And this is all about the redemption of creation here in, in Romans 8, that we're waiting for that day when Jesus comes to make all things new, even creation itself. 
we have that statement there. Creation itself is subjected to the effects of the fall. Let's turn over to Lamentations. Right after Jeremiah, book of Lamentations. Yeah, and some of your translations might, not, might say he does not bring affliction willingly. Um, who, does anybody's verse, version say that? Yes, yeah. And, but that, that is, somewhere between those is what it means. Uh, it, it, it clearly, according to other scriptures, nothing happens outside of God's will. So nothing just happens unwillingly. What it means is more that statement there. Um, he does not afflict from his heart. Um, let's see if we could kind of paraphrase this down and make some sense of it. God does not get a sort of evil, capricious kind of joy by bringing calamity or bringing disasters or bringing suffering. He has a purpose in it. There is, there is a sovereign will in it. And we could get into those different wills of God, uh, the, 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 the decreed will, the, um, the, uh, the desired will, and the actual will, these things that happen. We're not going to do that tonight. So suffice it to say for now that God wills everything to happen. And if he did not will everything to happen, then those things wouldn't happen. So it's not that he doesn't do it willingly, but he's not getting sort of an evil joy out of bringing suffering and affliction to people. There is a holy will, a sovereign will to it. Even, I mean, he's not sitting up in heaven like, hee hee, you know, what am I going to do next to these, these poor pitiful people? That is not God's heart. And I think that's what, what lamentations, or what Jeremiah means there in lamentations. Whatever the will of God is in our suffering, uh, according to Paul, that creation was subjected in lamentations, God doing these things from his heart. Whatever God's will is, we know that it is all for our good and for his glory. And remember what our good is, that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. And again, when you think of suffering, when you think of trials, um, even natural disasters and people suffering great loss, when you think of those things, immediately think of the suffering of Jesus and how it was the will of the Lord to crush him, according to Isaiah 53. But there was a holy purpose in it, wasn't there? Even in the crucifixion of his son, there was a holy will and purpose and goodness and love in it, even in that. And, and so no suffering and no trial and no affliction that we face, no matter how great it may seem on this planet, nothing compares to the death of the Son of God. And yet God willed that. And God was working through that to bring redemption to us. And so as we think about our suffering and our trials and our afflictions, whatever they may be, physical, uh, emotional, with nature, with weather, whatever it is in our lives that is affected in that physical way, we can trust God's goodness and know that he is making us more like Jesus through those things. Trusting God means we accept all from him. The, the author said it this way, no pain is wasted. No suffering is wasted. God is using it, and we should accept it all. It's what Job says again. You know, can, he says to his wife, shall, shall I accept blessing from the Lord and, and not also receive uh, God's taking away? Get, do, I just, do I just praise God in the good times, he says, or should I also not praise him in the bad times? Or Vestal Goodman says he's still God on the mountain. He's still God in the valley. He's God in all those situations and in all those circumstances, Job says, whether he gives or whether he takes away, it's my choice not to curse him, at least at that point in Job's story. 
It's my choice to bless him and to worship him, whether it's in the good times or the bad times, the good and the bad. As we talked about a few weeks ago on Sunday morning with the name uh, Jehovah Rapha or Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who heals you, we can pray for healing and deliverance. And I said that Sunday we, we should pray for healing and deliverance. The Bible, James commands us to. And it's a biblical command to pray for those things. So I don't think there's anything negative in that. Remember, we don't, we don't swing to the opposite end of the spectrum just because there's such abuse in the word of faith and prosperity gospel movement. We don't swing to the opposite extreme and say, well, God never heals and we should never ask for that and, and we're not going to pray for that kind of thing. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says we should pray for healing and deliverance. But in those prayers and, and in the time of praying and the time of need, we must come and approach God with trust, knowing that he will answer according to his will, trusting that his will is what is ultimately best for us and what is going to bring him glory, and we should approach him with submission. Remember, I, I talked that day about um, anointing the sick with oil and how in, in some churches that's used as sort of this magical, superstitious thing that we do to people as, as, as if that was the thing that does the healing, that is a sign of the Holy Spirit. And, and I reminded us, you know, what anointing was in the Old Testament. When people brought out the oil in the Old Testament, it, wasn't, uh, it was a sign of the Holy Spirit. It was a sign of blessing. But more than that, it was a sign of consecration. That whatever this thing is that was being anointed, whether it's the priest's clothes or the altar or the king or a prophet, the sign was they're being set apart to God. They're being separated from this and they're being given to God. And that should be how we approach God with these prayers of healing and deliverance, trusting him to do what is best and for our good and leaving it there with him, putting it all there and consecrating it to him, saying this is yours, not ours. Lastly, be anchored in truth, not experience. Remember the Alistair Begg quote from a few weeks ago and the, the worship service he was at and the worship pastor came and said, how do y'all feel? And how Begg he hated that question. He said, ask me what I know to be true because what I feel in any given moment, in, even on a Sunday morning, what I feel in any given moment might not be the best. I mean, suffering is real. Pain is real. And, and none of this, and remember the warnings I gave us the one week, None of this is to make us just throw up our hands and say, well, what will be will be. You know, Paul still says to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we still feel pain and enter into suffering and affliction and trials, and we should do that with each other as well. We bear each other's burdens. So this is not just to mask over everything and say, well, you know, it's God's will, and so we're not going to worry about it. No, we do hurt. There is pain. There is real suffering. And the Bible tells us, though, in the midst of pain and suffering and trials and hardships, as great as they may be, related to the weather or natural disasters or not, sickness, pain, whatever it is in our lives, the Bible says that we should anchor ourselves in what we know to be true, not in those experiences. And the, the classic example, and we have to be careful here because you can over-preach this, but the classic example is Peter walking out to Jesus on the water. And he was doing something that was impossible, humanly speaking. 
He saw Jesus out there, and you know, Peter, I've got to do it too. I'm going to come out there with you. And for a while it was working, right? Until, you know the story, right? He took his eyes off Jesus, and he became distracted by his circumstances. In that case, the waves and the storm that was around him. And as he was distracted from the source and the object of his faith and his hope, he began to sink. Of course, even then, Jesus pulls him out. But how often is that us who are so concerned with our circumstances and our lives in the moment and the trials that we face and the heartache that we face and the heartbreaks that we face that we take our eyes and our, our vision and our passion away from Jesus and put it on those things. And rather than concentrating on what we know to be true, we concentrate on what we're feeling in any given moment. And that just puts us on that roller coaster, doesn't it? Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and everywhere in between. We must learn to anchor ourselves in truth. That if, we, if we don't have an answer for what's going on in a given moment, we can still say things that are true. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why this diagnosis came to me or to my family member. I don't know why this is happening to my children or my grandchildren or my friends. I don't know why this is happening to that city or that region. But here's what I do know. God is good. Simple things, right? God is in control. God is loving. God is merciful. God is kind. God is sovereign. God judges. God pours out his wrath. And he can do what he wants to do because he's God. And even if I don't understand it, I can leave it with him. And I can trust him. You know, just rehearsing simple things that we know are true. And saying, this is what is true, even if I don't have an explanation for what's going on around me. Now listen, sometimes God does reveal the answer. You know, you might be going through something and God reveals to you. In whatever situation it is, God might open a door for you to comfort someone else. Or for you to be a, an encouragement to someone else. Or simply, he just reveals something that's in your heart. A sin, or a distraction, or a weight, or something that was distracting you. That he removes through suffering. You know, there's, there's various things God can reveal, and sometimes he does reveal those things. But remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Even if he, he keeps it a secret, the secret things belong to him. Stick with what he has revealed and obey him and follow him in those things. Lastly, let's look at one more scripture, Habakkuk chapter 3. I think this is just a good summary of what we've looked at tonight. When's the last time you turned to Habakkuk? Probably when we did the Minor Prophets series, right? Unless I was turning to too many places and you gave up by then. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read for us verses 17 through 18. Let this be our sort of departing blessing. Notice this is the end of Habakkuk's prophecy. Um, like most of the prophets, there is a lot of bleak moments of judgment and despair and hopelessness because of Israel's sin. But I want you to listen to this promise. Though the fig tree, Habakkuk 3, 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock cut off, be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's do verse 19 too, why not? God the Lord is my strength, he makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. 
I always wondered what that whole thing was about making my feet like deer, because it's in the Psalms too, a lot. Your feet like the deer and the feet like rams and all that stuff. You ever seen those old, um, not old, you ever seen those pictures of those mountain goats that like stand on the side of a mountain? Like where there's nothing to even stand on, they're just standing there. Uh, that's the picture. These, these deer and rams and goats and these huge, large, awkward-looking animals that are somehow in goats, you know, standing on top of tree limbs and on top of houses. Where they, you know, that, that's the picture. In these seemingly impossible circumstances where it doesn't make any sense that you can stand there, the prophet says it is exactly there if your hope is in the Lord that you can stand nevertheless. And the picture is awful for Habakkuk there. He says, there's no crops in the field, there's no herd, there's no sheep, there's no cows, there's no food, there's no water. Even then I will rejoice in the Lord. He is my salvation, and he can cause me to stand even when I don't feel like I can stand and when there's nothing to stand on. That's the promise God gives us. And that's why Habakkuk and Job and all the rest of the Bible say it's not about what you're going through. It's not about your experiences or your circumstances in any given moment. It's about who God is and what his will is for you. I mean, listen to that. It sustained the Lord Jesus through that worst moment in human history. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And Paul says what's going on right now is not worth comparing to what will be revealed in us on that day. So stand firm, stand sure in God in the hope that he gives. Stand firm in your faith and know that God is in control and God is sovereign, even in all those terrible, terrible things. God, we love you and we thank you that, as the prophet said, you make our feet like the deer's. You make us to stand on high places. It doesn't make sense that we should be able to stand when there's nothing around us to support us. You strengthen us and you cause us to stand because of who you are. And so God, tonight remind us that you are our shepherd. Remind us that you are our king. Remind us that you are our friend, our father. Remind us of the Lord Jesus and his suffering. Point us to him. And God, in all things, help us to submit our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything else to you in every moment leaving it with you and trusting you to realize that you know what's best for your glory, for our good, and for your great name. God, help us to submit to that and help us to give all things to you. God, for the hurt and the suffering that is in this room even right now, things unspoken, things unshared, things in our hearts and minds, burdens that are weighing us down, God, I ask that you by your Holy Spirit, even now as we talk and pray, would pour out your mercy and your peace and that there would be a reminder in all of our hearts tonight that you're good, that you're sovereign, you're in control, you love us, and you are working all things for our good to be more and more like Jesus. You're transforming us day to day from glory to glory to glory. Let that be our hope and our trust no matter what life brings to us. God, in all things, we love you, we thank you. We give ourselves to you and ask that you send us with your blessing and your peace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com.
hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.